You're listening to Labor Wave. Some of us think that the, the social relations in which we're in need to fundamentally change. For me, the work side is a key place to organize, but not just because I want better wages. It's because I want relations of exploitation like they exist today to end. We are joined by Lilla Lustino, a graduate employee at the University of Oregon, who spoke about the possibility for a graduate employee strike authorized by the Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation, or the GTFF. The GTFF has been negotiating a successor contract with the University of Oregon for the past 11 months, and they have come to no agreement as of the recording of this episode. Things might have changed when this episode was recorded and when it gets published, but at the current moment, the strike will begin on November 4th. Loa provides us insights on the experience of their collective bargaining efforts, the reasons that it's been taking 11 months, and her impression on the University of Oregon's efforts to discipline and punish the labor force at the University of Oregon. We also broaden the scope of our conversation to discuss the labor movement in general in the United States and internationally, and what we are up against in late stage capitalism. Before our discussion with Loa, we had a brief interview with Aaron Kanzig, the Vice President for Bargaining of the Coalition of Graduate Employees, or CGE, who represents graduate teaching assistants and research assistants at Oregon State University. They have also initiated collective bargaining efforts with the university, and Aaron provides us a quick summary of what their goals are in bargaining and how people can be supportive of those efforts. We play the music of John Dwyer from groups like Damaged Bug and the OCs as he has given us permission to use his music without copyright. And we also have a new website called laborwaveradio.com where you can get all of our most recent episodes as well as blog posts. And we ask that listeners please support our content and share it around by following us on Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The first person you'll hear in this episode is Aaron Kanzig, and then it will be immediately followed by Loa Lustemel. Let the masters have their money while the people pray to the pictures, works of peace hang in the houses, but we've clearly missed the point. Can you talk quickly about what your role and position is? in CGE is? My role as the vice president of bargaining is to act as a coordinator of our big 20-person team. We have sub-teams within our larger team, and I'm just kind of a person who makes sure that everything's on track and that we're doing what we need to do to get things done. What are the goals for CGE this year in bargaining? Do you all have a platform, and what is it trying to accomplish? We do have a platform. It's Give Us an Ed Raise. It's a play on the name of the president of OSU, whose name is Ed Ray. Uh, last year, he received a 6% pay increase. And at the moment, OSU is really pushing uh, austerity measures in their new budget proposal or budget model. And so we're trying to push back on that by saying that if you can give our president such a large raise, you can also give us a raise. So the Ed raise stands for a variety of things that are interwoven into our proposals, including enhanced benefits, daycare, restrooms, as are pushing for more gender neutral restrooms across campus, affordable housing, as well as international worker support and summer support. And finally, equitable workload and treatment. Uh, and that involves uh, more training that's paid for our employees, as well as mandatory training for supervisors who need to know what is actually in our contract. You all had your first negotiation session recently on October 24th. And I'm hoping that you can give our listeners just a brief summary of what happened and what proposals were brought to the table. So we had our first bargaining session on the 24th, and 
It started off with a packed house. We had a really great turnout of our members. And throughout the day, we had people continuously coming in through those three hours and probably around 200 some members of CGE came by, which was awesome. The crowd's support was very well felt, both by the bargaining team for us and across the table from OSU admin. We presented six of our financial proposals. So those included uh, asking for raises, expanding our healthcare coverage, having family leave policy, as well as our new housing proposal, looking to get a committee of joint OSU and CGE folks together to develop actual affordable housing proposals and policies. We also talked about childcare proposal, expanding drop-off hours at the university, as well as creating a reimbursement system for people who are not able to have a spot on campus because childcare is so restrictive, um, both on campus and in Corvallis generally. And we also talked about expanding fee reimbursement for international workers who have to pay visa and service fees as well as DACA reimbursements or coverage. And then we were able to follow up those proposals with really powerful testimonies from six members. It was spontaneous and incredibly powerful, and uh, it really just closed out the whole day on a really high note for us. It felt really good to be able to have those participants tell their own personal stories in a way that was so compelling and inspiring. What are ways that CG members and fellow graduate workers can support the bargaining efforts of the union and any upcoming opportunities to do so? Yeah, so we're going to be bargaining for many, many months. We have to continue to be committed and we need people to show up. Our next session is on November 5th, which is a Tuesday from 1 to 4, and it will be at Westminster House, the same location as this first session. And also, we're working on continuing to show solidarity to the faculty union at OSU, the United Academics. We're asking people to continue to participate by showing up, um, as well as following us and contributing their comments and ideas through social media and all that. So there's lots of ways to get involved, and we're always looking for people to pitch in. How can members stay up to date on all things bargaining related for CGE? We've got a bargaining page on our website, which is cge6069.org slash bargaining. And there we have a bargaining blog that we're going to be routinely updating. You can check out our platform in more details and we'll be posting our proposals on there as we present them. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram will be posting about upcoming events and ways to get involved on those platforms as well. Okay. And you probably have a contract action team member in your department. So if you are a member, you can talk to those folks and they are in the know on what's happening. Well, Aaron Kanzig, <laughs> thank you for taking time to talk to us about your bargaining efforts and good luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you. I'm Lola Lucino. I'm a PG candidate here at the University of Oregon. I particularly study uh, migrant workers and collective organizing. I've been a member of the Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation uh, since day one. Actually, was one of the reasons why I ended up choosing coming to University of Oregon because the GTFF had uh, made headlines the year before by holding a strike uh, to fight for basic leave at that time. And I've been, I occupy different uh, positions and in the GTFF throughout the years. I've been the chair of the Workers' Caucus. I've been the vice president for political education. I was a member of the AFT Oregon board for two years. Um, and I'm presently just a rank and file steward in the sociology department. Currently, GTFF is undergoing intense negotiations, which are potentially leading to a strike that's been authorized to start on November 4th. So I wanted to just know a little bit more about the details of this. What are the current offers on the table from both management and the union? 
So just to give you a little bit of context, um, we've been in negotiations for like 11 months now. So um, a long, <laughs> long period of negotiations. And we declared impasse after, you know, several months of mediation, actually. And this is because we have reached a situation in which it seems like we are um, like a dead dead end in a way. Um literally an impasse in which the university is currently our main contention is regarding wages and health insurance specifically health insurance you know we presented our best and final offers regarding wages the the gtff is asking for a three percent increase to minimum g salaries each year of the contract and we're talking about three-year contracts and we also added a 1.5 increase to all g salaries so basically, so far, um, historically, the GTFF has asked for increases to those making the minimum. Departments are absolute freedom to pay as much they want to GEs. And we basically set the minimum salary. And the university has been very um, intentional about asking for an increase that also that impacts all GEs, not only the ones doing the minimum not only the ones receiving the minimum, and this is interesting because, you know, the, the rationale for, for the union is we are trying to take the GEs who are making the lowest to rise their wages as, as much as we can to the living cost. Like right now, most GEs make way below the living cost in Eugene, right? So we are just trying to increase equity within our bargaining unit. And the university is not necessarily interested in that because first, they're not interested in equity. And second, because they're not interested in particularly, you know, making sure that we can't become any closer to living wages. Uh, but they do want to seem more competitive. So they were interested in an increase that affected every GE. Our best and final offer also includes a 1.5 increase to all other GEs, right? The previous proposal that we had was a 4% increase to minimums only. And the U of O is offering a 2.5 increase to minimum GE salaries in the first year, then a 2.75 increase in the second year, and then finally a 3% increase on the third year. Top of your hand, the offers don't seem that far apart. Although I believe, like the intent behind um, U.S. proposal is very different, and again, denied. Like it's this is below inflation. The cost of living has raised like three point one percent in the area where University of Oregon is, and they are offering us, you know, below that to people who are already making way below the living cost. And then the more sticky part, and this might get a little complicated, but it has to do with how our health insurance works. The GTFF won in a, what was a very historical fight in 1999, the ability of controlling our health insurance through a trust. So the trust is um, has a lot of different members. It has um, members who are part of the GTFF. It also has members who are part of the U.S. administration. And the trust administers our health insurance, to which the university contributes 95% of the costs and uh, the individual Gs, you know, like they contribute 5%. Why is this so important? This is very important because we have the capacity of controlling our benefits in a very significant way. And we have been able to make sure that our insurance is an insurance that covers GEs in the broad sense, not just healthy, wealthy, young, single GEs, but that covers GEs and GEs, you know, the graduate employees, um, right? That covers graduate employees at the University of Oregon who are not that, who are parents, who have chronic illnesses, who, who are not necessarily wealthy, who are not being supported by their parents while they're here. Like this is an insurance package that it's, it's a good insurance package. Um, you know, some people are like, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's really good. And we fought pretty hard to have it. I would say it's a bare minimum that we should have coming from a different country. Like I'm still shocked at the inequalities of the health system in the U.S. So the trust to the U.S. administration is just a pocket of money that they have not yet used 
to save their alleged budget crisis. So what they what they're proposing is like basically making the trust disappear in you know some way or the other. You know they what their first offer was like the trust will disappear. We'll just give you money in the pockets to, in, to you know individually to GEs, and with that money they can buy the premium that they want. And that money was less of course, and the money that they had been contributing before. Quickly, the conversation moved away from that first position, which was like, we're not taking this. Um, because it was this idea in which they could, they, you know, they, they came to the table being like, they acknowledged that because they pay us so little, they have a hard time recruiting grad students to come to this university. So then they, and they're upfront about that, you know, like, yeah, we pay you so, so little that people don't want to come. And it's like, I wonder why. Right. And so they're like, let's, let's, and they're like, okay, we'll do this. We'll take the money out of your health insurance and we'll put it in your wages. And, you know, but like, you know, when you do the math, you not only come out losing in the sense that there's not a real increase in wages, but this creates fundamental inequalities within our bargaining unit because not all members have the same health needs. So then, you know, if you are younger than 26 and an American, you can just be in your parents' health insurance and then pocket the money. So then they might be great for you and they might have a, they might be better for the U of O to be able to recruit those folks to come to the university. But what the GTFF has been able to do all these years was actually make it possible for other people to come to grad school by offering a really good health insurance that allows you to include your partners, your dependents in general, basically, your family. Um, and this is all the things that they want to take away. They're like, no more family in the health insurance and no more of this autonomous capacity of like, you know, having a really good package. And let me add, for really good money, because actually the GTFF Trust has been very careful and we had made collective decisions to keep the cost of our health insurance as low as possible. And premiums go up. Right, because we understand how the healthcare industry works in this country. They're using this idea that you know premiums could go up as if it was our fault that the healthcare industry is so volatile. We came up with an answer to that, which is that when premiums were going up last year, we actually changed the company that we were having our health insurance through to make to to help the university save money. Like we saved a significant amount of money by making this change to a different company. And this is us. And in the past, we have reduced some of our benefits, collectively discussing how to reduce them to avoid huge increases for our members and for the university. We offer cost containment. And cost containment meant that if the premium increased more than, I think it was 10%, uh, which is you know totally possible that that could happen, but on average it has been around 7%, we would go 50-50 about that with the university instead of 595. And we show the university how responsible we've been with the trust, how we make sure that our members are covered, and how we also make sure that the costs don't go too high for the university, right? Uh, which is, you know, above and beyond, in my opinion. But the university is not really actually interested in the reality that we are actually cheap to insure, right? Because they, we could be cheaper. Because labor could always cost less, Right. And they are literally sitting across the table and telling us, well, you could do worse and still survive. We could offer you, like, you're, we're going to assess your value and we're going to tell you you're actually worthless. We're going to give you less and we expected you to accept it. We're going to give you less and in directly impact a lot of your members and your most vulnerable members. And that's it. And, I, and you're just, we're just supposed to like be okay with that offer. It's like, we're going to offer you less wages. We're also going to offer you worse health insurance. And you're also going to lose control of that health insurance. And that's what's at the table right now. What you're saying about their counter proposals in terms of you negotiating over health and your willingness to even talk about cost containment. To me, one of the insights that I connect with there is how the dollars and cents matters for managers and bosses, but a lot of times these things also come down to control. And it sounds Absolutely. to me like they're trying to just push, they don't want you to have any democracy over your own healthcare. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ultimately, maybe some folks would disagree on me on this, but um, 
I, I definitely think this is a question of discipline and control of the labor force. I think Michael Schill, the president of the University of Oregon, is looking at his ne- next gigs. And his next gig might be an Ivy League, like Harvard, who is fighting against its grad students right now. It's fighting against them unionizing, right? So we see a lot of big universities fighting really hard against grad students unionizing. And I think what Mike Schill wants to put in his pocket is show that he was able to control this union, to discipline this labor force. And this is what I think it's at stake. You know, like um, Misty Matella, who is right now the head of HR and sitting at the table leading the negotiations, well, actually, Peter Ferris is the lead negotiator, but basically she's the highest ranking administrator sitting at the bargaining table right now. And she was very open and candid. And she was like, your health insurance is too rich. People before in my position have promised this university, that they're going to cut your health insurance. And when bargaining time comes, they're never able to do it. And I said that I could, and that's how I got this job. Like, literally, you know? And what's interesting, and I like, you know, I've been thinking about this, is they knew from the start, because from the day, from the very first day that negotiations started, they knew that one of our cannot bargaining items was health insurance, right? Like they knew we were actually willing to take really low wage increases in order to protect our current health insurance, right? Like not even increase it, not even improve it, not even, you know, at some point we were asking for like, you know, more uh, coverage over the summer or at least more coverage over the summer for international students who are obligated to have, you know, a health plan while they're here because of their visa requirements. And we kind of like forgot all of that, you know, and like, um, which, you know, that's an a debate and another time but basically like they knew so Misty knew sitting at that table that what she had promised the administration what she had promised Mike Schill what had got her her position was the one item in which she knew we were not going to budge on so I like I wonder if they had just been you know wasting our time all along like knowing that they were not willing even to like consider uh, proposals that include cost containment. Like, we're like, wait, if this was about money, like, here you are. Here's the solution. If this, this is about money, we've been saving you money. Let me show you how. If this is about money, let me show you how we can save you more money in the future. This is not about money. This is literally about discipline. And not only at U of O, unfortunately. This is about disciplining a mobilized and organized, a strong union here and anywhere else. So for people to hear, like, this is how you crack a union, right? I think this is what's happening. I think what's happening surrounding the state of Oregon really confirms that a lot, too. I mean, in my impression, the post-Janus environment and the kind of state legislature that's given way to this austerity narrative has totally emboldened all these public universities in Oregon to just go after their public worker unions. So we saw with SCIU, they got all the way down to the last minute of a strike, got a tentative agreement that prevented that, seeing it happen in the GTFF. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is like a coordinated plan with all the public universities. Some people, some folks, you know, read the fact that SEIU was willing to go on strike as, you know, like, okay, the, you know, the labor is rising, you know, working class is active. And actually, what I think it shows, because these are all defensive strikes, like if we go on strike on November 4th, it is to perhaps get a not so regressive contract. When we went on strike in 2014, th- that was an offensive strike. We were fighting for a right we didn't have and we thought we had to have, that we could not wait any longer for paycheck leave, that it was inconceivable that someone had to give birth and then be back to work the next day or their pay would be deducted from them. And that, you know, we were moved by that and willing to fight for that. And that's why we went on strike. This time around, we are just trying to hold on to what we have. Because what I see and what I think, you know, it's precisely what you were saying is that Janus has emboldened employers to be willing to take unions to the very, very edges of strikes in order to just hold on to what they already have. We should all be pretty worried about that. It's, it's interesting because this is a, very, a big piece of American culture, which is, you know, this attempt to like try to avoid a strike. 
from every end, you know, labor and employers, everyone wants a way to strike. And I understand why. I, I know strikes are not fun. I know strikes are hard. I know strikes are complicated. I know you don't always win when you go on strike. But the fact that people are so afraid of strikes, it creates the situation in which it would seem like the peak power uh, the labor has is right before striking. So there's a lot of structural pressure to take whatever deal. It looks like we're performing. Right now, this performance is going to wait until Sunday, November 3rd at midnight for, a, you know, someone to reach a deal that it's suboptimal, but we are all assuming that that is the best that you can get because that is when we're powerful, the most powerful. And kind of like, I wish SEIU had gone on strike. I'm glad that they reached a deal. And I'm glad that they didn't have to strike. And I, at the same time, wish they had. And at the same time, I wish we had been bold enough to call impasse earlier and to actually go on strike with SEIU. Because I feel like we are just being cornered into positions of defense in which, like, I don't know. I, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, right? Like, even if we... Even if we win, we're just walking out with a worse contract than the one we just had. I am surprised when I see union news come out that says this union or that union went on a strike or almost did, but they got an agreement and the agreement was historic. The rhetoric is always incredible celebrations of the status quo. And I'm not trying to single out any particular unions, but I see some people calling a tentative agreement with the 3% cost of living adjustment <laughs> historic. <laughs> And I just think, where what has happened to the expectations of the labor movement? Historic was the weekend, right? The forty-hour work week—that's <laughs> history. With eight hours, right? Yeah. Right. This is this is not history. This is holding on to, I think, the inches. It just sounds to me like you're frustrated with that as well. Unfortunately, I've also incorporated a lot of the rationale that makes people who have been in unions for a long time be resistant to strike, be res- to be skeptical about being able to achieve more by doing more intense or direct actions. But I like, I, you know, I disagree with that view uh, fundamentally just because I, it seems like this is a very worrying time. It's going to be the same with the GTFF. No matter what we get, we're going to say it was a win, right? Because if, you know, it, it could be like, it could have been worse. We were on the, on, you know, on the verge of losing everything. I don't know if you know about a little bit about the tactics the DTFF used in this bargaining cycle. Let me expand a little bit on that because I think it's interesting. We decided to go with a really, really big bargaining team. The last bargaining cycle, it was a small bargaining team, five people. Our staff organizer, the president, and like three more folks that volunteered their time to be on the on the team. And what happened is was that it was a very undemocratic process, to be honest, um, not super transparent. And a deal was reached, you know, ah, it wasn't a bad, you know, it wasn't a bad contract, honestly. Ultimately, it was not a bad contract. But the way in which the deal was reached was like not necessarily very collective, I would say. Not even to that small team. And it was a like very small amount of people who participated in the final decisions, right? So this time around, we went with a really, really big bargaining team, which I think it's amazing. As many folks as they wanted to be part of it, they could. It was like open to any member of the union to be part of that bargaining. They started meeting, you know, way early in the summer, came up with 56 proposals, which is a lot. You know, we opened so many articles. The folks in the bargaining committee, they so much work. And the first uh, day of bargaining, you know, I saw them all walking in, it was like 20 something of them. And it was powerful. It was powerful because all these folks from like different departments, different backgrounds, different countries coming together, organized, Singing across the table from the administration and showing, you know, like this is what we are a collective. Like, look at all of us right here. The response to that, like, it's it's very interesting. Like, even coming out that strong, you know, like I feel like we came out really strong with a strong position. You know, the, I think that the last few years have been good years for our unions. Our membership has increased. We have like really committed leadership and rotation of leadership in this like very organic and amazing way, honestly. Like, and you know, I'm a pretty skeptical person. So like, I've, I've been very like surprised by what has happened to the JTFF since I've been here. And now here we are like 11 months later and people are exhausted. 
and they're playing with our exhaustion. People are just like, let's just take whatever we can that is not that bad, and that's going to be a win. And that, to me, is very disappointing. When you look back on the tactics and the strategy, do you feel like there was a turning point where the energy went from being very ambitious and high mobilization to kind of shifting more to the defensive side? Well, I think two things happened. One was that we started mediation. And the mediator, who coincidentally or not coincidentally, is the same person who mediated uh, the first contract that the Credit Employees Union of Portland State negotiated uh, with the university. And that was actually, it's interesting because I was actually in the last, in their last bargaining meeting. And at that time, the mediation was open. You know, I was part, I was in the room with them, you know, um, I'm not even a member of their union. But this time around, the mediator said that the mediation was going to be closed. And the members, not, not even outside people, not even members that were not part of the bargaining team would be allowed in. And I think that changed the energy a lot, right? Because it disconnected membership from what was happening, even though, like, you know, the bargaining community did fairly good effort at like communicating but it's not the same but more importantly it's not the same for those in the in the team because they stopped seeing us seeing in the rank and file that we're supporting them and then the dialogue became completely broken right because it's like the university in a different room talking to the mediator and then the mediator coming talking to the union and then the university being like okay we'll talk to you directly if you do a sidebar only with three people like immediate like all those tactics they just talk about breaking the unity of a collective that is like showing you their power through the fact that they are unified and that they're coming together to talk to you you know and i was discussing this one one of the bargaining um team members and they were like yeah like it seems like doing the sidebars they don't say anything new but that just it's a way to like break the conversation break the team down because they are like not willing to admit publicly the things they are telling us like Missy Mattella wouldn't say publicly like oh yes this health insurance is too rich and like my you know my job depends on you not having a good health insurance anymore um, but she will tell that to two or three people because she expects that to not leave the room and like ultimately you know that just shows like how this you know, contract negotiations are like attempt at like pacifying class struggle that is ultimately unsuccessful if folks on the side of labor are very serious about their intentions. If you really want to change things, there's only so much more you can do in these tables that are like particularly negotiations that are set up to like prevent any radical transformation. And I'm not saying we were asking for radical transformation, but what we were asking for like at least, we, we came up strong asking for radical increases in our wages. Um, I mean, radical, <laughs> because we made less than 16,000 a year uh, on average. A radical increase was just gonna put us below the poverty line. Like just, you know, a little bit high, but still below the poverty line. <laughs> Like, I wonder, and you can never know, if UO's attack was stronger um, because they saw that the GTF was so organized that they that we went to the table with such a strong position that then they came out to us even stronger or are not really. So almost like concerned that being so coordinated and well-organized created a more vicious counter-assault? Well, actually, um, I mean, yeah, what I'm saying somewhat implies that, but I was more thinking about like that that showed them that they had to discipline us more, that it was very important for them to like actually exercise particular ways of control against our bargaining unit more than anything else, that it stopped being about the money and started being more about control, which is always is, right? And like then if that was, and that's the case, that I'm glad we're strong and I'm glad we are united and I'm glad that 90%, 95% of our bargaining unit is willing to go on strike. That's why it has, needs to be done. <laughs> I want to talk more about what you were saying about the limits of collective bargaining and labor law in general. But before that, I do want to follow up on what you were just saying. So your vote tallies were recently conducted. And 
I want you to just make sure these numbers are accurate. But from yeah. what I read, you had more than 87% of your entire bargaining unit participate in the vote. And of yeah. those folks, 95%, at least 95% authorized a yes on a strike. Yes, over a thousand graduate employees authorized the strike. And it's actually kind of like invigorating because I've seen so many folks around campus wearing the shirts, wearing the bottoms of ready to strike, being super active on like social media, starting conversations with each other about, you know, I feel like we are really ready, I think, to act collectively to defend what we have. I wish we were at ready to act collectively to go for more, not where we are, but definitely those numbers are correct and they, and they speak for themselves, I think. Yeah, they're tremendous. How did you all accomplish getting so many members engaged and willing to go on a strike? I think we were very fortunate last year to have a president who was very a very effective communicator. And like this is not to make it like a one person thing, but he was very he had been in bargaining teams before and he was the one he's the one leading, you know, the negotiations. And he made like the the whole the whole board that was there last year made sure that the process was collect as collective as possible. Even when we were not able to go to mediation anymore, they kept all the members informed. We had several GMMs in which we were discussing details about what was happening in bargaining. There was a lot of conversation very early on about particular details regarding healthcare. So I think that that was key. Like there was a lot of involvement from members throughout the process. It's not like, you know, just a group was participating and now we're knocking on doors asking people. From the start, a way more collective process. I think the big bargaining team uh, made it so almost every department is represented at the bargaining table, which made way more easy for folks to like knock on the door of the person they know in their department and ask directly about what's happening. And as I was saying, I think the last couple of years, a lot of efforts directed towards internal organizing in our union, a lot of like successful blitzes in which, you know, members go out and do door knocking and like talk and like doing assessments and like very conscious about internal organizing. But definitely, I think that that you know, we were really good membership levels by the time that we started negotiations. I think that shows, you know, and I think that shows in, in a vote like this, in which uh, people are willing to walk out of their jobs to defend, you know, um, their health insurance and to ask for a fair contract. And the start date of that strike, should it happen, is November 4th. Is that correct? Yeah, so we, so at this, where we are right now exactly is that we have authorized the strike and then we need to call the strike and give it 10 days notice, basically. The first day that we could do that is Thursday, so that would put us to start a strike well, Sunday the 3rd, but like not, you know, we're not going to strike on Sunday, so Monday 4th would be the first day. How can supporters outside of just grad employees at U of O be participants in that strike? Like, what are you all calling for from the public? What we're calling for is direct, of course, you know, like we have a, there's a web page um, that is called youallhellno.com. At the end, I think there is a petition, but also the possibility of sending an email. It gives you like prompts you to send an email to leading administrators of this university asking for them to, to give us a fair contract. Any use of social media that visualizes what's happening, any any shows of support are always appreciated and welcome. If folks want to come walk the picket line with us, we're going to appreciate that as well, but we are not asking for that necessarily. But definitely shows of support through social media, through writing to the Yoga administration, to, through writing public op-eds or anything like that, you know, making sure that people know what's happening here. Ultimately, you know, the University of Oregon is such a perfect example and the worst ways of where public education is in this country and in the state of Oregon. It's high time that this is a more communal conversation, even among Oregonians, if you will, about what is happening in this university, what is happening in public universities in this state, that tuition keeps rising, keeps expelling Oregonians from being able to go to school, that keeps expelling working class students from actually being able to like, get a degree in these universities, 
that continues to boost administration wages. It's so funny, you know, uh, President Schill gave himself a $60,000 raise, right? I have been working in this university for four years and I have yet to make that number total in all the years that I worked, in all the summers, even with all the grants, even with everything. I, I, I add everything up and it's not $60,000, which is what he just gave himself because he can do that, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I actually, what I, what I would like the most as a way of support is starting these conversations, you know, in Corvallis, starting these conversations in Portland, having these conversations in Ashland and Saturday, everywhere, having conversations about what's happening to public institutions in the state, what's happening to workers' rights, how we are just blatantly reproducing inequality and it's just it needs to stop but it won't until this conversation it's a broader conversation that just our wages this time around or our health insurance this time around yeah your comments are reminding me about an interview that we were able to do with zach schwartz weinstein and eli meyerhoff they've started (laughs) in calling on what they talk about as abolitionist university studies Mm mm-hmm which is a pretty interesting insight and intervention into like critical university studies. But one of the big takeaways for me was how they highlighted that the public university system is not just a unwilling victim of neoliberalism and these right wing attacks, but has in fact been equally, if not more responsible for the creation of neoliberalism and the kind of paradigm that we are all vulnerable to right now and subjected to within higher ed. What do you think about that assessment? I mean, I, I agree. And it's interesting, right? Because as every institution in capitalism, universities are contradictory, are contradictory institutions, right? And they have in the past been a space of critical thinking. And like, I'm not going to deny that, right? And like a lot of political movements took place in universities, you know, and and I don't think it makes any sense to deny that while at the same time recognizing that most of what universities do is reproduce inequality in its worst ways. From my students who need to sell their bodies to the U.S. Army in order to come to college, for those who need to sell their bodies uh, playing football in order to come to college, from the fact that student workers in this university make the lowest wages, they have no benefits, and they are being forced to pay like a ridiculous amount of dollars in tuition, right? From the fact that the university plays a huge role in the financial bubble that keeps bursting in working people's faces in this country. It's so it's so interesting because um, the University of Oregon just passed last year a resolution that allowed it to basically kind of like free willingly like invest or disinvest or do whatever they want with tuition money, you know, just play in the Russian roulette that, you know, financial system is. And it's so interesting because it's like you put people in the financial system by forcing them into debt to go to college. Then you use that money that comes from the financial system to put it back into it, to pay Russian roulette, you know, as a university, while students just are struggling to make ends meet and get be, keep being expelled from the university because they can't afford tuition, you know? So you have them here for two years paying like absorbing amounts of tuition and after two years they have to leave and that money just, you know, it's just... It's just horrible. I just like, I, I absolutely agree with that assessment. In terms of how to change these things, I want to go back to what you were saying about the limitations of existing labor law and collective bargaining rights. So I wonder if there's some lessons to be learned from some of these more ambitious victories that we have seen across the country. Like, for instance, the teacher strikes that happened in West Virginia and mm-hmm. Oklahoma and Arizona. Do they offer a contrasting view of what could be won and how like militancy in the labor movement could be revitalized? And then also we saw the teachers down in Los Angeles and up in Chicago as well using existing labor law and the strike as a tactic to go beyond these limits. Where do you see some insights there that we can apply more generally for the rest of the labor movement? If we look back at labor law in the U.S., it it has always been designed to prevent <laughs> any radical transformation of the society. And it has never been crafted in the best interest of workers. It was just crafted in, at, at some point in the interest of like social peace, whatever, you know, um, some form of that. 
it is blatantly obvious that the National Labor Review, like the National Labor Board, uh, Relations Board, and that continues to to rule against workers and have for the most part rule against workers in multiple, multiple situations for private, public employees. But this is my takeaway specifically, right? So like we are aware the labor law is limited. We are aware the labor law doesn't, hasn't really helped uh, the labor movement, has actually limited the labor movement. We are so constrained by trying to be as legal as possible that we gave up fundamental, fundamental tools of any labor movement, like the solidarity strike, which is, I'm still like, you know, like I think about that and I can't believe like that was, that that was given away. Like that's just like giving up the fight just before you begin. And yeah, and the fact that, you know, that the, the regulations that prevent you from striking while you're under a contract, you know, those two, uh, those two things alone, without even going into all the other details of how labor law prevents a, a, a labor movement to make any significant gains. And then you see the West Virginia teachers, right? And they are precisely, for me, the example of why we shouldn't be limited by the legal structure that we inherit and why we should be looking back at strategies before Top Harley, before the trade unionism in this country. You know, like a lot of people like oh, trade unionism in the United States, so great, not so great. Honestly, not so great in so many levels. We should be looking back to experience of like late 19th century, early 20th century, where the working class was organized without legal limits. Because literally what I think labor law is, just legal limits to what we can do and what we cannot do. And I understand sometimes like labor law can be mobilized in effective ways. I would say that those are very few cases. And for the most part, I, I truly think that we should be looking at strategies beyond and outside the scope of the legal limitations that labor unions have agreed to in what I think is like a historical defeat, honestly. You know, those laws are not a, are not a victory. They are a, they are a defeat, honestly. And at this point, when there's not even a resemblance of anything that is helpful to the labor movement, we shouldn't be afraid to find them. We shouldn't be afraid of like striking in solidarity. We shouldn't be afraid of like striking, even we are in a contract when the working conditions are not improving. The insight you just made about this is like, these are the consequences of historical defeat. I really agree with you. And I think it's not just a defeat that's been experienced from the bosses and capitalism. It's the right wing of the labor movement that has defeated the left wing of the labor movement in the United States. And that's what we're dealing with is like a narrow parameters of what labor's identity is and could be. And the right wing of the labor movement is still experiencing its victory over that front. Yeah, and it's not, you know, and it's not only in the United States, of course. And at some point, we need to reckon with ourselves that we are not all in this together. And I think that that might be something controversial, you know, to say within the labor movement, but we're not. That's the reality. Like some of us think that the, the social relations in which we're in need to fundamentally change, right? And we go and we're part of the labor movement. And uh, for me, the work side is a key place to organize, but not just because I want better wages, it's because I want relations of exploitation like they exist today to end. And the thing is, not all of us agree on that. And we have acted as if we do, and we don't. We fundamentally don't. And there's a sector that actually, all that it's doing precisely, and like, and it's interesting, like, you know, and I, of course, coming from Argentina, like I have like a, a different experience, it's a, just a, a very different labor movement, you know, a super active labor movement, but a different type of labor movement there. But Ultimately, the results are the same because what you see there is like that labor movement that, that rose in the 40s in the same way, in the 50s in the same way that they hear, all that, it, all the, the ones that got into power, all that they were interested in doing, it was a more 
responsible capitalism. And they had it for a little bit. They were never interested in fundamentally altering uh, their social relations. And for me, that's what's at stake. And at this point, we're like, there's, it seems like neither the capitalist nor the state is interested anymore and even give us some crumbs to keep the social peace because they can just, you know, I don't know, like it seems like it's not even necessarily anymore. Then this is the time for us to really recommit to the idea that we really need to radically transform the society and like stop pretending that we are all in the same wagon. I don't think we are. I, I wish we were. And I think it is, it's part of our role to try to get us all in the same wagon, but I don't think we are. And I think we deny that in the labor movement a lot. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think part of that denial looks like us exaggerating our own victories and celebrating them to our detriment because now it's hard to discern what's a victory and what's a loss. And it's ultimately fear. And I understand where that fear comes from. I'm not going to pretend that it's not real. I'm not going to pretend that very committed labor movements were defeated in this country. But I don't think we can keep playing this game. We are at a point in which there's like, we are at bottom line, you know, like we are, workers are far from making ends meet. Workers are super in debt, indebted. We are very close to like an ecological catastrophe. Like what does it take for us to be like, okay, no, like we, the game needs to change. We can't continue to pretend that it's a victory to keep what we already had because we had nothing. Generates a lot of problems, of course, because then it's like, well, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? Like, look at the political context. And then that is true, you know, and like um, making connections with what's happening elsewhere. You see that when people go and strive for more, they are met, even in this country, they're met with like literal violent repression, right? So, like, I, I, I see why we can all be afraid of that. But the strategy, the defensive strategy, has failed. And we see some wins from more offensive strategies, like you mentioned before. So maybe it's a time to like reassess, redirect. Well, before concluding, I think it would be good to talk about where, where do you see hope and possibilities for the <laughs> kinds of victories that we actually need? I don't know if you're, like, you're aware of what's happening in Chile right now. But like right now, there is a huge political uprising popular uprising against a model that has been shown around as like, you know, the Chilean model, like, look at this, like, like neoliberalism at its best. And look how nice it is, right? Like, um, it's being parade around as this like economic model to like imitate, but other global South countries, um, how to be a good subservient country <laughs> and not complain about being completely, completely fucked over by them international division of labor, if you will, and imperial powers and whatnot. And people are being met with extreme violence. There's a lot of people right now, like literally dying in the streets of Chile. But people are out there and they're still defying, defying laws that were passed that were like significantly increase the poverty levels that they were already in. They are defying what they seem, they see as like a very undemocratic society in which, you know, the 1% rules over them and it just rules for the, you know, international ruling class and not for the Chileans in any significant way. And they are out there and they're fighting and they're fighting under horrible conditions and they're still doing it. So I'm like, at the same time, like really move, afraid, sad and mad and profoundly mad about what's happening in Chile. But I'm also hopeful, I guess, because under the worst odds, they're like still out there fighting really, really hard against a very, very unfair system. So then I see that and I'm like, well, you know, we should be able to win this strike here. <laughs> um, it seems like the stakes are not that high. And like, it seems like we are in, in a way better position to make the claims that we want to make. So then, you know, and, and and even here in the United States, like as we were talking, I see the teachers walking out. I see the Chicago teachers. I even see like some like, you know, unions that I didn't think that were going to be willing to go on significant strikes. And they have, 
And, and then I'm like, well, you know, there's people in the rank and files, there's new generations who are getting really, really the worst end of the deal and that they are coming together and like they seem to be fighting for, for better things and being willing to actually fight. So then I'm like, well, maybe, you know, there is some type of hope in the sense that it's possible to organize collectively differently. You know, like right now, Chile is calling for a general strike. And what I wish for this country, you know, is a general strike. What I wish is like to recuperate that capacity of organizing massively for a general strike. And I see hope, for example, in like the feminist movement, particularly in Latin America, particularly in Argentina, you know, like a very class conscious feminist movement that it's like literally at the forefront of fighting against the IMF, for example, against foreign debt oppressing countries like Argentina. So like some hope there. I agree that we can't guarantee victory <laughs> or the uh, prospects for success. But we can, we can never guarantee that, you know? Right. Yeah, it's not destiny that we'll win, but the human spirit does seem to have much more resilience than even I can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, like, let me add this. We were having this GMM, which were like, you know, about to authorize a strike. And there were so many concerns about like, well, but what about my students? I really like them, you know, and like, what about this? What about that? The reality is, and this is something that we need to, you know, grapple with, is that fighting against the capitalist powers, <laughs> to be very simplistic, it's not easy. It's super hard. It's violent. It's uncomfortable. It, it costs lives. Like literally, it has co- always cost the labor movement lives to be able to, to achieve even the bare minimum of rights. And I understand that we are afraid of that, but we should know that this is not going to be an easy fight, but it's definitely worth fighting for. You know, like at this point, like, are like literally the survival of humanity's at stake at this point. This is not going to be fun, but the other option is way worse. Well, with that, I want to thank <laughs> you for being on Labor Waves. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, and wait. again, we will be calling on listeners to support GTFF and their upcoming strike, should it happen, and hope we can have you on the show again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
the beast. 